Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction, a publishing grad student at NYU and an aspiring literary agent. Hi, I'm Kelly, a genre hopping writer, domestic goddess, which is a fancy way of saying that I am a stay-at-home mom and wife, and I occasionally captain the Hot Mess Express. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. This season, we're also starting to get into some interviews with other writers and industry professionals, so we're very excited for that and hope you'll enjoy those episodes as much as we did recording them. I'm very excited to introduce Regina Duke, a longtime supporter of my AuthorTube, Twitch, and Ko-fi platforms. But in this episode, we're flipping the script and giving her some much-needed adoration for her amazing author career. That's such a good intro. So to kind of kick off the questions, I feel like the very obvious question in the room is, what drew you into writing romance? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to both of you. I actually decided to write romance because the only writers group in my area was filled with romance writers. And I thought, well, I want to be able to talk to people in my group. So I guess I'll try writing a romance. Prior to that, I was writing science fiction short stories and horror and had published in a few small magazines back in the 90s. But I thought when I started writing novels that science fiction and paranormal genre would be the one for me. And then I decided to try a romance because everyone in my group was writing them. And it turned out okay. (laughs) I mean, you're like 40 plus books later. And a USA Today bestseller, I would say that it turned out pretty okay for you. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think I would enjoy writing romance when I started, but then I met some really cool people in my writers group. They provided me with a lot of mentoring and a lot of information, a lot of help along the way, and then I felt a lot better about writing romance. My first romance was called Northrend Delight, and I've since published three books in the Silver State Romance series, but those were not the ones that took off. A mentor and good friend had called me on the phone and said, this genre is really hot right now. This was back in 2012, 2013. So she said, I think you should drop everything. I was writing a fourth book in a Silver State Romance series. She said, drop that book and sit down and write A Marriage of Convenience right now. So I did, and two months later it was published, and it just, it was a very popular genre at the time, and I just never looked back. I said, okay, I guess I'm writing a series. (laughs) The romance that really took off was my first Colorado billionaire's romance called The Wedding Wager. I love series, so it's like I can find an author and not only can I become obsessed with the author, I can become obsessed with like the series. What is your favorite part about writing romance? My favorite part is discovering that writing romance is a lot of fun. I didn't think I would enjoy it, frankly. I I thought, okay, this will be work. This is when writing becomes work. And I tell you that first wedding wager just, it just flew onto the page. But I did have to take some time to 
review quite a few romance novels and decide what was going to be different about writing romance than writing science fiction, etc. I have a different voice in romance than I do in horror and science fiction. The real surprise, though, was falling in love with Eagle's Toe. My romances are centered around an imaginary town called Eagle's Toe, Colorado. And for some reason, there are a lot of billionaires who invest in that area and decide to move there. And adding my secondary characters and letting them show up in every book, I have had readers tell me that they want to live in Eagle's Toe, that they love it there. And that's really a great compliment. So so I'm an, I love it. I love writing in that universe. Eagle's Toe does sound very interesting. And I wonder what it is that makes all these rich people want to move there. So I might have to look up the books, Regina. And this is completely like off script, I guess. But like whenever you're talking, you remind me of a woman that I could just like walk up my road and talk to that's like sits on her front porch and watches like traffic and stuff. She's like super nice. But you just remind me of like people around me. (laughs) That's so sweet. Thank you. But to get back into you, Regina, how would you describe the differences in your genre-specific writing voices? I've never tried to explain it out loud, but it's as if there is a part of my brain that wants to live in the sunshine and see happy endings. And that part of my brain does not go to dark places. That is my romance voice. There's sweet, clean romances. There is no overt sex. So it's you get married and close the bedroom door. Is That's the kind of thing I write. My voice is very upbeat in the romance and very sweet with regard to vocabulary as well as activity in the story. Now, my, <laughs> my horror voice is very much different because there's another trap door I can drop through when I'm writing horror. And it's very dark and bleak down there. And words seem to grow syllables as I'm writing. So the vocabulary is somewhat different. I use words that most people don't know I am aware of in my horror and my science fiction. It's like being two or three different people in one head, you know. My characters in horror and science fiction, they know all of the swear words and how to use them but they don't overuse them. They use them appropriately. But also things get very physical and sometimes graphic, but not bloody. Sorcerer's Apprentice, and I'm trying to remember if I put K.B. Woods on that story. That's my science fiction and horror name, K.B. Woods. Sorcerer's Apprentice describes the transition of a young man who thinks and is raised as a human being who discovers that he is not. And he transitions into a breeding alien. And the language of the story actually describes what he's going through and what he's feeling as that happens. So much darker than my romance. Romance are fairy tales and happy endings and horror and the science fiction are, what if this happened? And can I say this? And would this scare the crap out of somebody? (laughs) 
Do you think there would ever be a successful way to combine a romance within a horror novel? I think a horror novel could have a romance in it, but you could not market it as a romance. A romance could not embody a real horror story and still be marketable. Uh, Romance readers want very specific things when they're reading a romance And if you go outside those boundaries, then uh, you will lose the reader. That's a very good explanation because I've just always thought like if you take two completely opposite genres, how would they mesh together? You could put a romance in your horror story. Your mangled monster could, of course, fall in love with someone. Uh, You know, that's Beauty and the Beast. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean a romance reader would actually pick that book up. Romance readers do read more than romance, but if they're picking your book up for romance, they do not want the other stuff in there. Thank you. So you talked about how romance readers expect certain things, and there's been an online debate on Twitter, which, you know, already classifies it as a trash fire. The debate online has been, does romance always have to have a happily ever after or happy for now? I just want to have someone who's made her career on romance. Yes. You're the voice that we're going to listen to. I would say a guarded yes. A romance reader wants a positive outcome. Now, depending on which kind of romance you're writing, There is a spectrum. I write sweet, clean romance. People fall in love. They have fun together. It's like Rock Hudson, Doris Day in a movie. I'm dating myself. (laughs) But you can have the conflict at the beginning. They hate each other. Things can happen and they go, oh, you're not so bad. And then they actually wind up finding things about each other they like. And at the end, they realize they're in love and they live happily ever after. And some of those sweet romances of mine actually end with the promise of a baby is on the way. However, if you're writing romantic suspense, wow, I tell you, I've read some romantic suspense that Okay, it's romance, but, you know, it starts out with an abduction and throwing a woman in the trunk of a car. And I'm just like, ooh, that's a little rough for me. I, as, as a romance writer, that's not something that I would do. So I consider that more suspense than romance. But they do have that category, romantic suspense. So I would think that as long as your heroine survives, and that would be a positive outcome, right? <laughs> But yes, it it would depend on the reader. Things may look bad, but you have that inner hope and knowledge that things will get better and there will be a happy ending. (laughs) Because to me, the whole point is you're trying to entertain people with a scenario that they certainly are not living in real life. Anyone like Kelly, you're a mom, you know how much goes on behind the scenes, just trying to keep up with the little ones, how busy you are, how much work there is to do. They want to be carried away. You know, it's like fill your heart with sweet romance is my Regina Duke logo. Fill your heart with sweet romance because real life is going to crash in on you anytime now and you're going to have to get back to work. But for now, you know, 
you are being adored by a handsome billionaire and boy, what would that be like? You know, life could be different, but only in that book. It's just the fantasy of it all. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Let me pretend for four or five hours that my life is different. That's all. It was so funny because Logan and I actually talked about that because like, I don't know if you uh, see any memes or like the TikTok stuff, Regina, but there was this one that was like, would you cheat on me for like a million dollars? And the boyfriend was like, yes, and you're welcome because that's going to be our money. That's going to buy us a house. That's going (laughs) to... do all these things and I'm like you know what that would be Logan and Logan's logical reasoning behind it and I was like I told him I'm like I wouldn't do that I would just feel wrong he's like so you're gonna pass up all that money that we could go buy our land and start our little homestead and I'm like (laughs) see I think that Part of that attitude comes from in Western civilization we have, or rather I should say in Judeo-Christian society, there is this feeling that women have to be pure, but men can go out there and do what they have to do. That's repeated even today in movies and stuff. If a man is in business, sure, he can be a cutthroat. If a woman is in business, then she's a bitch. And it's not just in movies, it's real life, unfortunately. Yes, that's exactly right. So, a lot of that is cultural, but I agree with you, Kelly. I I wouldn't cheat on somebody for a million dollars. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm like more like a guy in this instance. I would do it, but it wouldn't be cheating because I tell my partner beforehand. <laughs> That's what Logan said. Logan's like, I'll let you know what's going down, but I'm also going to tell you the price tag on that. And I was like, perfect. I feel like I wouldn't do it for a small amount. Like it has to be really, really like this has to be like, oh, we could start a new life or the next phase of our life type of money. Yeah. And that's what he was like. He's like, it's a million dollars. We can move states, start our homestead. That would be our ticket. And I would gladly do it for us. And I'm like, oh my goodness. That is part of me says that's the difference between men and women. And part of me says it could be a factor of my age because I'm older than the two of you by probably four or five decades. So, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, to be fair, Appalachian culture hasn't really progressed a whole lot, which is partially why, like, I love Appalachia, mm-hmm. but sometimes the people in it, you can be traditional or have your own values, but like, I wish people would be more open minded instead of like shovey down the throat, you know? <laughs> Yes, yes, I hear you. Let's talk about some things that you might dislike about being a romance writer. Ooh, let's get spicy. (laughs) Okay, one thing in romance, I only have one book that has a sex scene in it. And I have regretted writing that sex scene ever since that book came out. And that was the very first one I wrote, North Rim Delight. I can read clean stuff. I just want to know what I'm getting into. So like, I don't want to go into something that I think is clean and then be slapped with surprise. It's not. Exactly. You know, but I'll read all over the place. Yes. It's mostly just harder for me to read a 16-year-old acting like a 16-year-old because I'm like, you could be so much more mature. But they can't really, because that's the point of YA. (laughs) That's exactly right. I don't write heterosexual sex well. I'm not good at it. You know, I have to pretend I'm watching a movie and relating what's happening on the screen. 
You write many genres of romance. We've mostly talked about your contemporary because that's been the most successful. Right. But you've also done some paranormal. And then you did a sci-fi one, The Mind Flush Saga. Yes. I have that sitting on my shelf. These are all genres that I've done or I plan to do. As people know, I have a paranormal romance trilogy and a sci-fi romance trilogy. What would you say ties them together and differentiates them from each other? You talked a little about this when you were answering your voice. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between contemporary paranormal and sci-fi as romance subgenres? Oh, okay. My paranormal, the collector's series, collectors are my version of vampires. And I love the idea of vampires, but I did not like the idea of bloodlust, you know, and gore. So my vampires are a little different. They collect something other than blood. (laughs) And they're doing so for a very noble reason. When I'm writing sweet romance, I need to keep my mind and my imagination firmly rooted to the earth and the restrictions on the modern world. I can't get too crazy there. For my paranormals, I really enjoy just going off the rails and world building and that sort of thing. A lot of world building in my paranormals, but they are not high fantasy. The Mind Flesh Saga, now that, I've only written one of those. It's supposed to be a trilogy. One of the reasons that my paranormals have, have not gotten a lot of attention is because my contemporary romance was making money. So so in a way, um, and you know, when you sell as an indie author, it's it's just a crapshoot. You never know when you're going to have a good year, when you're going to have a bad year. It depends partly on the market. It depends on how kindly Amazon's algorithms look upon you and so on. So when my romances started to drop in the algorithms, at first, I was very upset, but now I, I said, oh, well, I'm still going to write a romance a year because I love Eagle's Toe, but now I get to play with my paranormals, so I'm hopefully going to be able to do more of those in the near future. The Mind Flesh Saga is a touch-thinking alien shapeshifter who I actually started building that world maybe 25, 30 years ago, and wrote a huge, huge book placed in that universe, two or three of them, and they were horrible. You'll never read them because, you know, I wasn't much of a writer then. You have to practice your craft a lot, you know. But I took that world building and said, oh, what if one of these wonderful aliens I've invented had been sent to Earth on a mission, and since they're touch-thinking aliens, they have to be together. I could never understand why uh, telepathic aliens don't want to be near each other. Uh, They would have lost that ability, right? I mean, if you're going to be telepathic, you're going to be using that. So this planet has, or the people from this planet, they have one spoken language that they use with outsiders. And then they themselves in the clan will, as often as not, just touch each other and exchange thoughts or share feelings and do all of that. He knows he's on Earth for a reason, but he has he was not told what the reason is. Uh, because there's no spaceship involved. There's no spaceship involved because the, the 
spiritual forces of all of the dead souls on his planet came together. And when they want to transport somebody, the dead come together and pick them up and land them wherever they want them. Because spirits can move throughout the universe. They don't need vessels. So they'll surround whoever they want to transfer and they will just take them. So they put him on the earth with his friend, but they didn't tell him what he was doing there. So he's trying to maintain his warrior exercises and stay in touch with the dead of his clan. So they'll finally tell him what he's looking for. Meanwhile, he's trying to survive. And those two aspects of his life become totally entangled. And in trying to survive, he actually winds up fulfilling the first part of his mission. And then the the other two books will follow from that. That sounds very interesting. And I would love if I could just touch someone to let them know how I'm feeling whenever I can't put my feelings into words. Yeah, I was fascinated with that aspect myself. So I said, well, if you really were, if you could really do this, would you really, you wouldn't have 2000 plus languages on your planet because you wouldn't need them. But you also would not want to be left alone, you know. What are your favorite romance tropes as a reader versus whenever you're writing? And why do you like these tropes? Oh, gosh. Well, as a reader, I didn't know I would like it, but I really like Marriage of Convenience. I'm fascinated by the concept. I always thought those were interesting because the woman in me felt furious that the female character had to submit to this kind of arrangement. And yet the the other part of me thought, I don't know, this isn't too bad. You know, if things go wrong, it's not your fault. (laughs) Yeah, I really, I like that trope a lot. I'm not at all fond of the romances that involve abuse or where, you know, people are, uh, they fall in love with their tormentor. I can't stand that. I, I don't go there at all. But yeah. Also, the get away from me. I hate you. You're so good looking. You make me want you. <laughs> Those are fun, too, because <laughs> because you just your heroine does not want to get married. She has plans of her own. Thank you very much. She does not need you in her life. And by the end of the book, you know, the couple is totally in love. But there's all kinds of shenanigans that have to go on to get them to that point. So I really enjoy that one, too. You did like Stellar Blood, my Stellar Blood trilogy, though. Oh, God, I loved your Stellar Blood trilogy. <laughs> but that, see, that doesn't mean that I would. Well, I don't know. Uh, um, I was about to say that doesn't mean that I would write your story. But I sure loved reading your story. <laughs> <laughs> For people who haven't read that, it does involve like a captor captive thing. And I do put that as a trigger warning at the start of each of the books in the trilogy. Um, But I like to think that I wrote it more as a, you're so attractive, get away from me. No, that's the thing that you don't really feel that he's her captor. Because he also never does anything to actually abuse her. It's someone under him who isn't listening to his orders to not abuse her, who is a real villain of the story. Yeah, that's exactly right. I would totally agree that 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 whole trilogy is 
you're so freaking attractive. Why can I not stop looking at you? Get away from me. I don't need this. And then bang, you know, I I loved that. Uh, It's an excellent trilogy. Would you mind giving us a little peek behind the curtain so our listeners can know a little bit more about your experience of being a self-published author? Um, Obviously, you don't have to say everything. As a Kofi creator, I encourage you to paywall some of this stuff. But, you know, just a little bit, because also you've been doing this a lot longer than we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or than I have, because Kelly wants to be traditionally published. Gosh, let's see. Well... I've been writing my whole life and learning the craft and tried the traditional publishing route before there was email or internet of any kind. And of course, you know, back then you really had to go to New York and meet people. I mean, it was who you knew and, and who you could talk to. So I was not in a position to do that. So I just kept working away and submitting from a distance. But when the ability to publish my own books came, I figured after four long family years of trials and tribulations. So when those situations resolved, I said, okay, you now have the opportunity to publish your books on Amazon. That was all there was then. And so you had better either do it or shut up. So I said, okay. So I I actually took an online course What's her name? Jane Friedman. She used to work for um, uh, Writer's Digest or something. Yeah, we'll leave a link to her website um, because it has a lot of good advice for indie and traditionally published authors. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So January 2011, I paid for her online seminar, two and a half hours, and took all of her advice and said, okay, I'm going to do this. At the time, I did not have a website. I did not even have an Amazon account. I knew nothing about anything. My computer experience was all office related so and academic related. So I did not know anything about the world of marketing or social media, nothing. It, I said, okay, let's just do this one step at a time because it terrified me. You know, she, she said in the seminar, indie publishing is, is half writing and half marketing. And if you're not going to market, then you're just writing for yourself. So, you know, do what you want. But, but if you really want to get your books out there, you're going to have to learn how to do these things. So I said to myself, all right, do one thing at a time. So the first thing I did was get an Amazon account. My (laughs) writer friends, they, (laughs) they would laugh at me because I spent 10 hours reading the Amazon contract, you know, the terms of service. I was so nervous about signing any kind of contract, (laughs) but uh, step by step, I just I get up in the morning and say, "Well, today I'm going to see if I can get on iTunes. Um, uh, what do I have to do to do that? Today I'm going to get a domain name. I'm going to start a website. Today I'm going to do this." And and while I was doing that, I was also writing like crazy and trying to decide what should I try to publish first? Because I had like eight or 10 books that I had been working on, but only one of them, at that point, I joined the writer's group I told you about. And only one of the books I had written was really could qualify as a romance. And so I had actually started that book, North Rim Delight, as romantic suspense, but it's very lightweight suspense. 
Okay, it's not throw them in the back of the trunk and drive away and kidnap your victim kind of stuff. It's more like, gosh, I need a hero and maybe you're him, you know. But the heroine was strong too, but it just took her a while to figure that out. So I got my Amazon account. I did not know how to format a book. I hired that done for the first several books. I did not know how to make a cover. I hired that done for the first several books. All of those things would just, I would like take a Xanax and start, you know, exploring Barnes and Noble. Can I get on here? Can I go there? Can I? So just inch by inch and step by step, I just learned what I felt I needed to know. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. And and that's basically what I did. I, I The first year I published four titles. Only one of them was a romance. One of them was a dog book. Um, loving the sensitive dog, and uh, I can't even recall what the words were, but um, I just kept going. I kept going. With you saying, you know, you just got to keep on putting one foot in front of the other with like self-publishing and like doing all the steps. It sounds like something I repeat to myself a lot whenever I'm having like a hard time or I'm finding myself like struggling with writing time or just feeling really down on myself. It's Kelly, you got to do the damn thing. (laughs) Yeah. You don't fail until you give up. Yeah, exactly. You know, I in 10 years, I think I probably, when I say sold titles, I was on Kindle Unlimited for quite some time, and I kept track of those titles as well as the ones that were actual sales, mm-hmm. books read and actual sales. So those combined, I know that I had over 300,000 sales in the first 10 years and I had and I probably gave away as many uh, or if not more books you know because you used to be able to give free books away on Kindle Unlimited and stuff my numbers now are much more modest but my attitude is fine because I go okay I get to play with my paranormals now (laughs) Amazon isn't going to be on my side Well, that's fine. I'll sell fewer books, but I'll write more of what I wanted to write in the first place. Because Colorado Billionaire series probably it put you on the map and it was like something that you really enjoyed, but now you can write the books of your heart. That's true. Segwaying into the next question, common advice for romance writers is to write a series. And you've done that with the Colorado Billionaire series, the Collector series, the Strange Tale books, Mm -hmm. the Mind Flesh saga. So can you tell us what it is like staying in a world for so long? And how do you juggle all of these ongoing series? Oh, wow. Now that's a good question. Well, first of all, they, wow. I haven't juggled them very well because most of what I've done is write the once I started selling in romance, I started everything was romance, including novellas. And I did a now and forever romance series, which is basically one hour reads, which is not in Colorado Billionaires at all. I have not novellas in the Colorado Billionaires universe for seasonal things, Christmas stories and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, you know, I said, well, I. I'm going to just, darn it, I wanted to write this book forever, so I'm going to do it. You know, if they don't sell big, that's okay. I love writing. I'm not going to stop writing, you know. And this is what I mean by it. it. Selling fewer books on Amazon 
has actually freed me up because I no longer feel locked into that feeling of this is earning me money and I'd be stupid not to do it. So I I had some good years, big sales and so on, but now my sales are more modest, but my creative juices are flowing more, you know, more than ever. And one of the great things that happened, well, the pandemic wasn't a great thing, but for me, the isolation of the pandemic sent me to YouTube and put me in touch with all of these young writers who, you know, are just so eager and ready and they're learning their craft and they're just starting. And I love that energy. And I, I've been there and, you know, it's, it's a glorious place to be. So I'm having a lot of fun uh, at this point in my career. It doesn't bother me, you know, that I have lower sales. I just keep going. I just keep putting my books out there. And if one of my other series takes off, that's great. And if not, I'll just write what I want to write. So I'm having a good time. I think that's what's important, though, is that you're having a good time doing this. Yes. And because Logan and I were talking about this a while ago, actually, because uh, sometimes whenever I'm trying to write a book within a specific time frame that I set up for myself, I get very stressed if it's not going the way I want. And uh, Logan will constantly remind me, hey, this is supposed to be something you enjoy and something you love to do. So if it's stressing you out, you know, maybe take like a day or two to do something else and then come back to it because this is something you love and I don't want to see you start hating something you love. And I'm like, oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It does help to take breaks. But I suspect, Kelly, that you are so motivated. I suspect that you're very much like me in the fact that you can only take one day or maybe two and then you have to write. Oh, yeah, definitely like two two days at longest, but it's like... I'm I'm the kind of person that likes to set up all this stuff and try to do the absolute most that I can and try to meet these expectations. And sometimes Zara is even like, okay, you need to be kind to yourself. You are human. Yeah. <laughs> yes. do, wanting to do all those things are nice, but... Yes, that's true. And, and the thing to remember too is like I had a whole career, uh, my day job was a totally different career. I had an academic career. And so... All of my writing from ages oh, uh, 25 until the day I retired, all of my writing was, that was where I went to uh, console myself. That's where I went to spend my weekends, to have a good time. I, my writing was that, you know, it was the thing I loved to do and work was what I did to make a living. So, which means that I was not a normal academic. You know, a lot of people go into academia and they never leave. You know, they die in their office that they've been granted because they've been uh, an emeritus professor. And by God, that's the only thing they'll ever do. And I, I retired and said, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go home and start writing my books. <laughs> I feel like academia because I have a degree in uh, education. That's why I went to college for so I could uh, teach young children. Mm -hmm. But um, it's something that like 
I was happy that I got the degree, but I'm like my, and I love little kids. Like I love little kids. I love watching Luna learn. I love like other people's like small children, you know, it takes like very specific people to be in academia, but I'm like, I, I feel like you do Regina where it's like, I love this thing, mm-hmm. but also this, this other activity has my heart as yeah. well. That's exactly right. Yeah. I totally understand that. Yeah. Would you ever write a standalone? Um, I thought I had written standalones. And then I, after I invested so much time in those universes, I thought, well, I'm not leaving this universe I spent 20 years building. And that's why Mind Flesh Saga is going to be a series. And that's why Collectors is a series. I, yeah, I, I, I keep meaning to write a standalone. <laughs> It just accidentally ends up being a series. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to say maybe that should be my next challenge, you know, write a standalone. <laughs> yeah, just really like try, be like, you know what? No, this is going to be standalone. And- yeah. The two books I've been working on for the rest of 2021 are all standalones. And I'm like, God damn it, I'm making sure they're staying standalones. <laughs> I know that's so hard, huh? And having and doing beta reading and things, you know, I can understand why. Yeah, yeah, you could turn those into series in a heartbeat. But then, how do you start your new worlds? You know, how do you create new universes if you're if all of your energies are going to continuing one series or two series? So it's it's a dilemma. kind of going back and talking more about characters and your heroines um which heroine is like your favorite or you would want to be like your your bff or like your your just favorite heroine that you have written i think my favorite heroine not my favorite character they're not always the same because I have secondary characters that I absolutely adore. Favorite heroine, I think, is Mackenzie. She's in book seven, The Wedding Gift. She starts out as a troubled young woman. And, you know, my my brother loved that book. He said that was his favorite in the series. So anyway, she's very strong and, and just does what has to be done and, you know, I just admire her so much. That's the book that starts with her pushing the uh, ex-boyfriend's classic Mustang off the cliff. (laughs) Yeah. An old marble quarry. She uh, decides that she's had enough of them and she's going to get even. And she just shoves that car right off the cliff. And and then the story goes on from there. (laughs) So that, yeah, I really like her, Mackenzie. But- um, I like all my heroines, really. She just is one that stands out to me. Which distribution channel gets you the most sales? I know you said that you were in, you know, exclusively Kindle for a while. Yeah. But if the answer is still Amazon, would you say KDP Select is worth it? Or do you like being wide? Which for people who don't know what that means, it means that your books are available on more than one platform. Right. 
for quite a while, Amazon was the bee's knees, as they say. I started on Amazon, and they used to have a borrowing program that eventually turned into Kindle Unlimited. And I put my books in that. And then at one point, the whole, everyone was saying, oh, you've got to be on iBooks. I actually got an invitation from, I met an iBooks CEO at a conference, a writer's conference, and he invited me to submit my books and publish on iTunes and and promised all kinds of support and backup. And of course, you know, that never happened. But on the other hand, uh, I did get my foot in the door and learn how to deal with iBooks, uh, which wasn't easy at the time. Fortunately, I had a Mac, so the sales on iBooks was never great because at that time, iBooks, people would go to iTunes for um, darker stories. Uh, There was a time when iTunes had a reputation, iBooks had a reputation for being like porn and hot sex and stuff like that. And my sweet romances did not have a market there way back when in 2014 and so. Um, But what irritated me was that iTunes at the time would show book covers along the bottom of my screen, of my book screen, and they would be for, you know, highly sexy erotica and, and all kinds of dark kinds of whatever. Uh, and I talked to them and I said, look, you, you can't show this on my, my readers see that on the bottom of the screen and they're going to look somewhere else. So I just took my, I shut it down at iTunes and just concentrated on Amazon and went all Kindle Unlimited. And I did that until um, November of 2020. Yeah, 2020. (laughs) I had to think. Because at that time, things had changed so much with the algorithms at Amazon that, um, Kindle Unlimited was not bringing in the uh, reward that it had been bringing in. The monthly payouts were getting smaller and the number of people participating was becoming huge. And so you made less and less money for pages read. Uh, Plus the number of book sales was going down mainly because my... um, my best marketing opportunity had closed its doors basically to indies. That's BookBub. They claim that they still offer advertising to indies, but first of all, the cost is really prohibitive. And secondly, they can prove that's true by actually selling me an ad. I did Amazon marketing until I realized that the amount of money I was spending on the advertising was just about equal in the last few years to the amount of money I was earning from the books. And I said, well, gee, let's, let's not do that. What's the point? So now at that point I decided to go wide and I reopened my Barnes and Noble account, my iTunes account. And I also signed up for Kobo and Google books, Google play. The sales there have been non-existent, but it makes me feel good to know my books are out there on different platforms. (laughs) iTunes has, has, has shown some uh, improvement, but the rest of them, basically sales are non-existent. 
What do you want to see more of in the genre of romance? That's a hard question to answer because there are, I'll preface this by saying for a long, long time, romance has been given a bad rap. And I think that's because romance, there's such a variety of romance and people who like action adventure would read a Harlequin, for example, and say, oh, this is crap. Nothing happens. All they do is talk about their feelings. So they would just say, oh, romance, you no, it's all bad. Don't even bother reading it. But the thing is that people who are looking for a story filled with feeling, are they want to read that. And there are a lot of us out there, and a lot of us are female. It's as if romance was, oh, that's woman's work. That's woman's books. You, we don't... Real people, serious science fiction writers don't read romance, okay? I got that a lot in the, in the 80s and 90s. It kept sneaking into my books. I'm not sure I'm the one to say what other romance writers should produce. I think that they should produce the kind of stories that they want to read. Regardless of what I'm writing, uh, people used to tell me in fan fiction that uh, my stories were real plot heavy. And I said, okay. <laughs> You're like, and? And? <laughs> it's a story. But, but on the other hand, I did. I had a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling. So I actually, my romance is not always what people expect, I think. when they. But I think to assume that you're going to pick up any romance book and it's going to uh, fall into a certain category uh, that may or may not be a positive uh, description of that book, you know, or a preconceived notion of what romance is. I, I think that's a mistake. I think if you, and you should pick it up and read a few pages. And if you like the writer's voice and you like the way the story's going and, you, and it intrigues you, keep turning the pages. The next question is, if you were to dive into romantic retellings, which story would you put your own spin on? And this doesn't necessarily mean that it's already a romance and you're just retelling it. It can mean that you're adding romance to a story that previously had no romance. Oh, my goodness. Oh, get me in trouble here. <laughs> Gosh. Now we're talking fairy tales, right? Or yes. It could, be a, it could be a myth, too. So, like, if you wanted to do uh, Orpheus and Eurydice or something, mm. like anything that can be retold. Hmm. Okay, I'm thinking... I think in a weird way, some of my paranormals actually are have a flavor of Beauty and the Beast. There's not the capture element, but the object of affection turns out to be something different than the heroine expected. Or does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not into the uh, the capture part, the Stockholm Syndrome part, but I really like that a story where two people meet and discover that they're in love with the inner person. I like that. So, so that might be a possibility. Oh, enemy mine. You have two individuals, whether they're the same sex or otherwise, but they're in a situation where they are not supposed to be friends or whatever. They're supposed to 
hate each other. And then, then as the story goes on, they suffered greatly dealing with the emotions involved in realizing that they don't hate each other. And in fact, forbidden love is probably on the horizon. So I like that. We've referenced it before, but you have published over 40 books, not including box sets. Right. Do you have any words of wisdom for how other writers, including Kelly and myself, can be as prolific as you? Well, one thing you can do is write novellas. I found out I never had any desire to write novellas. But when I started selling romances, I found out that there was a market for like one hour reads, 90 minute reads, etc. Based on your universe. So like, I'll, I'll write a 20 to 30,000 word story on Amazon, you put a cover on that and you call it a title and refer to it as a book. I just published number 12 in my Colorado Billionaires novels, but I have eight novellas that go along with that universe. So that would like, you know, if you're going to think in terms of traditional novel length, that my eight novellas might translate to four novels worth of story. So I'm being totally honest here with my with my title count, because I don't write 180,000 word fantasies, for example. So, and, the, and those would count as one title also. I started actually putting in the book description how many words the book was, divided by the average reader's uh, books per minute or words per minute speed, and coming up with, this is a four and a half hour book, this is a five hour read, this is a six hour read, so that people would know that it, how long that book was. That's dedication. Well, and then I, I went to my novellas, and I would put something in the description there as well. This is a one hour read, this is a 90 minute read, so that my readers would know what they were getting, you know. And the prices on my books, I think it's it's really low. I keep it low because I go, people who are looking for books on Amazon, most of them can't afford to spend 14 or $15 on a book, certainly not on a digital book. So, you know, my novellas are like $1.49 and my novels are $2.99. And I, I have one self-help book. I forgot that one. Being Your Own Cheerleader. Self-help for writers. <laughs> So how to be your own cheerleader when you're trying to write a book. And, and you know, those don't, I don't sell a lot of copy of those, but I don't do a lot of marketing on those either. The pandemic has been really hard on me. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a rough couple of years. So I'm my goals for 2022 are to do more in the area of media and like my Kofi page and get my websites where they need to be and that sort of thing. I'll tell you what, regarding Kofi, Zara has rubbed off on me because my sister-in-law recently started a, like a knitting company. And I was like, you need to get a Kofi page because they don't screw you over like Etsy does with what they take out. And I'm just telling her all this stuff. I'm like, just set it up for a tip jar. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I sound like Zara. Just set it up for oh, a yeah, tip jar. Great. 
You it's do like, sound like me. I, I feel very proud. Yeah. And then I'm like, just grab your username. Like, make sure you get your username on there. Like, just yeah. grab it for that and grab it for your tip jar. And she's like, yeah. maybe. And I'm like, I'll bring over my laptop. We're get, we'll get it all set up so that way you know how it works. Yeah. And she's just like laughing at me. That's and I'm like, I'm like, no, listen. I'm like, I might not be able to help with like a lot of legal knowledge on like small businesses, but her older brother went to business school. You know, <laughs> she can ask him that. I'm like, I can help you with marketing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Hey, that's really important. So yeah. see, that's, I'm hoping to do that with my Kofi page because there are things that I, I don't want to put on Amazon or, or publish as full length books, but you know, I would, I think I have some advice to give that I think I could uh, you know, put behind a paywall on Kofi or something and, you know, give some for free and some behind a paywall, that kind of thing. You know, I have ideas about what I want to do on Kofi. And um, so 2022 is the year for me to really dive into that and uh, start adding things to my Kofi page. I like uh, commissions and stuff. I don't know if I'm big on, on commissions because I'm, I'm old enough where I go, do you really want to meet somebody else's deadline? But on the other hand, you know, I mean, like Zara does this beautiful how to outline your book. It's not a big publication. She sells it on Kofi, $3, and you get all this wonderful information. And I thought, well, gee, I like that idea. I like sharing some of that, you know. I think that would work. I would love to read that from you. I was going to tell you that the book I'm editing right now is the uh, writing prompts for romance. Yes, I'm so excited for that one. And it's about 30,000 words. Self-help books run about 30,000 words. Once it's out, the link will be added. To wrap this podcast episode up with a nice little bow, let's go back, back in time, Regina, to when you first finished like your first ever book draft, the rough draft, the first one. How did you feel? Oh my God, it was wonderful. First, first of all, I was writing uh, in an era when uh, there were no computers. And the interesting thing was, is the, the first time I actually got a computer, it was like a 64K RAM or something. It was basically a word processor, glorified word processor. <laughs> it let me backspace and erase. And that made all the difference. And the first time I finished a book, oh my God, the joy, the joy of finishing that book and the heartbreak of having it rejected. <laughs> well, it was, but it's okay. Cause you know, you, you got to learn your craft. You got to learn how to tell a story. And in those days I was not nearly as skilled as I am now. So it was lovely. I mean, just, just putting, writing the end, knowing I had finished a complete novel and tied all the loose ends up and so on. It was just such a joyful experience. And I said, yeah, this, I want to do this. You know, I'd been writing novels on paper since I was 13, but you know, it's not the same when you actually have printed out pages and 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 you know your word count and you know this is a real novel this is a thick book too bad that my writing skills and my narrative voice weren't up to the task at the time <laughs> but you know that's what writing is all about it's a journey it's learning how to voice your stories major part of the journey is finding your narrative voice which i, I think finally i started 
to do when I started indie publishing. Kelly has found her. She doesn't know how to describe it, but I, I do. I, I don't. And I'm still like, I will remember always being worried about my voice. I'm like, I don't have an author voice. And Sarah's like, yes, you do. And it's great. And I'm like, I don't see it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to reading this book. Oh, yes. Whenever it is published in, in the future, it's going to be great. Grand. <laughs> Amazing. That's um, the right attitude. There you go. Yeah, I'm like over here sitting cringing while I'm saying this, just so everyone knows. I'm like yeah. very hard to hear it in your voice because we've recorded so many episodes together. But I'm going to make it real as your agent. <laughs> oh, that's the other thing. I'm really looking forward to actually trying trad publishing again once, once my agent is ready to take clients. <laughs> well, that's what like I told Zara. I'm like, maybe I should just wait for you. But she like she encourages me to like query other agents. I'm like, you know what? This is just a practice. So whenever your query box is open, I'll send you the most kick ass query ever. There you go. I yeah. have uh, yeah. I collected all my rejection slips, you know, for years, and I have uh, uh, a real big, huge stack of collection uh, of rejection letters after submitting to traditional publishers for so many years. Some of them were nice rejections, you know. We love your narrative voice, no room on our uh, calendar, or, you know, I, yeah, it's it's fun. I, I, I Joey has gotten some really nice form rejections, and I've yeah. been asking her to send me them so I know, like, how to draft my eventual form rejection. But there you go. as much as I can, I do want to, like, give – a personalized rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understand that like at some level, like at some point in my career, that will become impossible. Yeah. Um, but I just want to do it for as long as possible. And I'm like, you know, I, I might as well just learn from what's already out there. Yeah. So that's why I get Kelly to give me. Yeah. My, <laughs> yeah. my first romance was submitted originally to uh, Harlequin, uh, North Rim Delight, I actually submitted to Harlequin. Got a very nice letter back from Brenda Chim from a Canadian, their Canadian office. And, and uh, she said, oh, I love your narrative voice, but there's just no room on our, no room, no room at the end. So I thought that was really sweet, you know, that she wrote that. And uh, uh, yeah, you can get, it, it really keeps you going, getting those positive, that some kind of positive feedback, you know, it helps a lot. So Kelly's uh, question was supposed to be the last, but I, I'm going to attack one on. Um, what would you say to writers who have never reached the end of a first draft? Oh, golly. Ooh. You're the only one we've asked this question. And I just feel like because you've done so many, you probably have something good to ask. It comes down to having faith in yourself to get to the end. Uh, an appropriate ending point in your story. It's not that you can't write 60 or 80 or 100,000 words, but I think at a certain point in our development as writers, we don't yet have the faith. We don't know inside ourselves where the book should end. So we just don't end it. It's like new writers, because this is was my problem is like how you were saying you don't know like where the story should end. But whenever I started completing drafts as novellas, it was such a game changer because I'm like, well, this is the first draft. That's great. That's exactly right. 
This is the Writish Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week when we'll be talking about architects and gardeners as other categories for writers. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Writish Podcast, on Twitter at write underscore ish, and on Kofi at writish. Bye. Bye.